As a young person, a youth growing up, a prominent man in our community publicly confessed moral failure. That, of course, was a sobering reality check for all of us. But I remember with some um, fondness, almost, the, the resulting, um, almost an outbreak of other confessions that happened on the heels of that. It seemed that his, his willingness to do that freed other people to... Gave them courage to also confess. I don't know what you think about confession. I don't know how it strikes you. Maybe it strikes terror in your heart to think about admitting failure. But this morning I'd like for us to consider confession. What is it? Is it part of our lives? Should it be part of our lives? At home, I'm working on a sermon series about the culture of the kingdom of God. What do we mean when we talk about culture? According to the American Heritage Dictionary, culture is a set of predominating attitudes and behaviors that characterize a group or an organization. A set of predominating attitudes and behaviors that characterize a group. Now, every organization, church, business, family, every organization has a culture. That culture might be intentional or relatively unintentional. But it is a a culture, and it's sometimes positive and sometimes negative, and probably often a mixture of both. But regardless what it all is, consists of, positive, negative, whatever, all of us are impacted by it. And all of us also shape it. For example, here at Hillcrest, you're part of the culture of Hillcrest. Whether you're here as, as a, someone who staffs the place, or whether you're here as a resident or administration, In a sense, even those of us who are visitors become a part of it, at least briefly. The administration works pretty hard to cultivate that culture, a culture where the warmth of Christ's love is felt and every person matters. Every person matters. Workers, residents, administration, even the state representatives when they come in to check you out. Each of you who live and work here are shaped by the culture of this place. But those of you who live and work here are also shaping the culture. You're contributing to it. So this morning, I want us to consider confession, not so much as a part of the culture of Hillcrest, though I think it applies here, but as a part of the culture of the kingdom of God. What is confession? Vine's Dictionary, trying to give us a, a grasp of the, of the Greek word, tells us that it means to speak the same. To speak the same. 
So literally, it would mean to speak the same thing or to assent or agree with. Well, we might ask, the same as what? What are we agreeing with when we confess? Well, Vines goes on to say that in the, in the, of course, in the context of Scripture, it's the same as God. And Vines goes on to say, to confess by way of admitting oneself guilty what one is accused of, or to declare openly by way of speaking out freely. So we have kind of two sides. One is an admission, and one is a proclamation. Confession has to do with acknowledging truth. And confession, I think, is related to honesty, humility, and transparency. Now, in general usage, when I think of confession, and I think it's probably the same for you, we think of the idea of the admission of wrong. And maybe that's why we sometimes kind of recoil from it, because none of us, well, I'll just speak for myself. I don't like to be wrong. And I don't like for you to know when I was wrong, when I chose wrong, or maybe just made, a, made an inadvertent error. I don't like that. When we think of it that way, it's used with reference to the truth of the brokenness that's in me, that's in us. It's an admission of that brokenness. That's why... That's why we make errors. That's why we choose wrongly, because of the brokenness in us. This morning, then, I'd like to look at it both from that angle of the admission of wrong, but also from the angle of proclaiming truth, because both of those fit within the scriptural context of confession as truth-telling. And I think both of those, both of those maybe different sides of the same coin are part of part of the kingdom culture that we want to talk about. So first of all, let's, let's think about it as profession, proclaiming truth. Two short sections of scripture. You don't need to turn to these. <clears throat> the first one from Romans 10, 9 and 10. Maybe this is one of the most familiar usages of confession in this, in this uh, sense. From the ESV. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Twice in those verses, the word confess or confesses. Believing and confessing are paired here in these verses. With the heart you believe, with the mouth you confess. Confession is agreeing with God. It's an express expression of that belief that's in our heart. And then from Matthew 10, verse 32, <clears throat> and, well, let me read the verse first. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Now there, in that translation, that's again the ESV, the word confess doesn't come up. The King James Version uses confess. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. It's the same Greek word that we saw in Romans. And the context here 
is Jesus sending out the 12 with the directive to preach the kingdom of God. They were to proclaim something. And in that assignment of proclamation, Jesus says that they should or could expect some opposition. When, when we proclaim truth, there may be opposition. Maybe I'll take time for a bit of a side note here. In this particular context, Jesus says the opposition will come from religious people. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of opposition or persecution, I generally think of it as coming from those who are not religious, those who are anti-God. But here Jesus is sending them to Jewish people, people who knew God, people who were, who were religious. And he says, you can expect some opposition here. Two comments about that. If persecution can come from religious folks, then I could kind of say any kind of, anytime you differ with me, that's, that's persecution, right? You know, Leonard might get up after I'm done today and disagree with me about something. That's persecution, right? Or maybe it's your coworker or your dorm mate or your fellow church member who disagrees with you. I think it's pretty easy for us as humans to slip into what I'm going to call a martyr complex. Others are against me. I've got it right, and they're just, they're just wrong, and they're persecuting me. That's not healthy, and that's not safe, because we need others to help us understand truth. We don't have a monopoly on it. Back to the primary point, though. These 12 were sent out to proclaim, to confess something about God and his kingdom. And Jesus said, go, do this, but there will be opposition. There will be pushback. And even in that pushback, even in that opposition, they were to continue proclaiming. They weren't to back away from it. Three times in the passage, Jesus tells them, fear not. So even when opposed, they were to go ahead and proclaim. They were to confess in that sense of proclamation. They were to agree with the truth of what Jesus was and the coming kingdom, and they were to tell others about that. Now, two things here that I notice that are paired. Boldness and humility. Boldness to agree with God about what he says is true and to say it, to not back down. But I think that should be coupled with the humility. The, the humility to be able to not be so dogmatic about what we think we see and understand that we cannot hear from others. We need other people to help us understand truth. Boldness and humility paired. When we confess and proclaim truth, 
We agree with God about what is right and about what is truly real. We agree with God not by just saying, "Mm mm-hmm, inside our heads, and not just with believing, yeah, that's right, in our hearts, but we agree with God when we say it out loud. So to confess in the sense of proclaiming is to say things that articulate that truth, that agree with God. In fact, I'm going to say this morning that if we're not doing that, if we're not saying it out loud, if we're not proclaiming truth, that I think it's legitimate for us to ask if our faith is dead. And I'm saying that partly because of what Paul said in Romans 10, the verses that we looked at earlier, verses 9 and 10, seems like there's kind of a requirement that this kind of proclamation is part of the package. That if thou shalt believe in thine heart and confess with your mouth, then we experience the salvation of God. Turn with me to Acts 3. And I'd like to read just a part of a sermon that Peter preached. It's a familiar account, and it's it's the sermon that comes after Jesus, after Peter, um, heals the crippled beggar. So Acts 3, I'll be reading verses 11 through 16. While he, this is the beggar that they had just healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom ye see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Notice here that Peter uses something that they are currently experiencing and proclaims from that the truth of who God is, what he's doing, and something of how God works. So think a bit about that link to what they were experiencing. I think it's important in our proclamation that we bridge to what people are experiencing because Only when we do that is truth relevant to their lives. For example, how many of you have heard about the Italian scientist Amadeo Avogadro's law? Anyone? Way to go, Doug, and over here we've got another one. That's great. Now, I could stand here this morning and tell you something about that law, which, by the way, basically says that equal volumes of all gases 
when they have equal temperature and, and pressure, they have the same number of molecules, okay? I could tell you all sorts of things about that, if I'd first learned them, of course. <laughs> and they might be ever so true, and they might even point to some amazing things about the Creator God, but does it matter to you that much? Maybe if you're a chemistry student or a chemistry geek, but for most of us, we can kind of go through our lives and it doesn't really matter that much because it's not really relevant. Well, it does apply and affect us, but it's not really that we have to know it to, to flourish and do well. And so for most of us, it's kind of, who cares? Peter's springboard for the proclamation was something that the people here could relate with. They knew this beggar. He'd been crippled for more than 40 years. He was a fixture in the community. Everyone knew that this man's legs didn't work. They never had and they never would. And all of a sudden, they see him walking around. In fact, he's jumping around. Would you be interested? I think so. Now, this, of course, is miraculous. And that, re that remarkableness draws us. We don't have to have that kind of spectacular, miraculous connection in order to relate um, truth to people's lives. But we do need to make it connectable. We do need to make it relatable if the truth we proclaim is really going to, to fit, going to connect with them. Secondly, notice that Peter deflects attention away from self. But not just away from self. He points to God. When we deflect from self, we're deflecting... Um, reflecting away from, I'm going to say, the channel, back to God, the, the source. Now, it's true that the things we do and say should stand out. As believers, they will stand out in a world that's fallen. So people should notice that. They'll notice you. They'll, take, they'll, they'll see that something's different about us. But that should point them to God, not to me, not to you. How should we point to God? Well, Peter does it a number of ways. He says some things about who God is. In verse 14, he calls him the holy and righteous one. In verse 15, he calls him the author of life. And then he talks about what God is doing. In verse 15, he says, God raised Jesus. And in verse 21, which we didn't read, it comes a little later in the, in the sermon, he says, God is restoring all things. And he talks some about how God works. This personal restoration comes through a changed life as the result of repentance and the blotting out of our sins. The same kind of radical transformation that they saw in this, in this crippled beggar, Peter is saying, you can have that in your lives spiritually. At the heart of confession, this profession that we're talking about, 
is telling the truth about who Jesus is and about his work in the world. And maybe particularly about his work in my life and in your life. One of the most powerful elements of that work is when we speak about what we are learning, about what God is doing in us, about what we're, how we're growing, how we're being transformed into the character of Christ. When we testify about changed patterns of behavior, overcoming anger, conquering addictions, peace instead of fear, then people take note. Proclamation. Truth about God and what he's doing. That is one side of the the coin of confession. The other side is the admission side, the acknowledging failure. And it is also a proclamation of truth, but it's a different kind. You're familiar with the verses in James, James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now the context of that verse is the sick man who calls for anointing with oil. Confession is linked with healing. And in, in the specific context here, the larger piece of it is physical healing. That's what, that's what the sick are calling for. They want a physical healing. They're asking God for that. But in the specific, the verse just ahead of the verse I read, verse 15, James writes about spiritual healing. And so the verse that preceded this was about spiritual healing. And that's primary. That is going to precede, I think, physical healing. Turn with me to Psalm 51. And as you're turning there, I want to refer to to a bit of the backstory for that psalm. Again, it's a familiar story. In in, uh, 2 Samuel 12, we have the, the... Well, in 2 Samuel 11, we have the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. And in chapter 12, we have Nathan the prophet confronting David. And he tells this story about a rich man who, when he gets visitors, doesn't take an animal from his flock to prepare to to feed this visitor. Instead, he goes to his poor neighbor who has only one lamb, and he takes that to feed his his visitor. And Nathan's confronting David. And David, of course, is angry by this. That's not just. That's not right. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. David's response to that is, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 is something of David's response then to that whole situation. And I'd like to just read the first four verses. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, when we think about confession, we probably almost always think about it in conjunction with repentance and forgiveness. And I think it's right that we think of those things in companion. But it is, I think, also right and okay for us to think about them as separate things, because in a sense they are. Confession is the recognition and acknowledgement of wrong. Repentance is the turning away from that wrong. And David, in his initial response to Nathan, said, I have sinned. He is acknowledging the wrong. And then in Psalm 51, and we also see it some in in the ongoing, um, in David's life going forward in, in 2 Samuel, but in Psalm 51, we see both confession, against you have I sinned, he says to God. But we also see the companions of forgiveness and repentance. Forgiveness, he says, blot out my transgression. Wash me from my iniquity. And repentance, basically, I will live differently. David says, I will delight in right sacrifices. I will teach transgressors your ways. So probably all of these things are part of the package, but I want to focus especially this morning on the confession element of it, the acknowledging of wrong. When we do that, we're agreeing with God about what is right. We're agreeing with God about our own brokenness and our need of him. Now, confession doesn't really in and of itself, change anything. God already knew. And it also doesn't change me, particularly. What it does do is open the door for for further change, because I'm agreeing with God. You see, if I don't agree with God, then I'm pushing truth away. I'm pushing the possibility of redemption and change away. So it opens the door for change by agreeing with what God says. In relating with others, I think there's several important things that happen when we confess to each other. First, I told you I don't like to be wrong. So I don't know about you, but I find confession to be fairly humbling. And that's good. When we confess, we're open, opening ourselves to another's input in ways that they can't give if we haven't told them, if they don't know what's going on inside of us. I think it's always true of all wrong, of all sin, that these things happen, but especially with the habitual, patterned, addiction kinds of things that we get stuck in sometimes. 
this confession seems to be a key first step in moving to freedom. Somehow, this acknowledgement, this naming of the sin is important in breaking its power. We also do something by admitting wrong. Now, as you look at the people you live and work with, I'm going to guess that you can see some of their flaws, some of their problems. Usually, that's the way we operate. It's pretty easy to, to see them and to maybe be kind of critical of them. It's pretty easy to kind of cover over, over our own and give ourselves plenty of room. At least that's the way I find it. But when I confess something to you, or when you confess something to your friend, we're in a sense putting ourselves on equal footing with them. And that brings, I think, a bond of, of togetherness that facilitates support that we need from each other. So how do we cultivate a culture of truth-telling, of confession, whether it's this thing of proclamation or this thing of admission, of acknowledgement? Just a few thoughts, and, and maybe I've already mentioned humility needing to be part of, of the backdrop here. I'm also going to say that there needs to be some level of relationship, some level of safety for the admission side of it to happen. Um, so we can extend, we can facilitate by extending that kind of grace to each other. And we also, of course, have to have a, a commitment to truth. But how, how, does, how do we make it practically work? How do we get there? Do you plan to confess? Did you think about it last week? Okay, this week I'm going to confess. As God shows me things about who he is, I will tell others. As God shows me things about the brokenness in my heart, I will tell others. Do we plan to confess? I think we should. I don't do very well at that. But I think we should do that. So we're here together this morning in what I'm going to call a formal corporate gathering of discipleship or worship or whatever you want to call it. Did you come planning to confess? There was a share time. You had the opportunity for some testimonies. Now, if we're going to do that, we may need to actually set aside a little time to plan, to think about what have I been learning? How would I say that so that it makes sense to the people I'm with? In a formal setting, there is often a time for it. And so you could, if you're brave enough to get your voice cranked up and get it going, you could say something. In an informal setting, it might take even more planning to, to insert it in the normal 
ebb and flow of conversation. But look for ways to confess. Proclamation, as well as acknowledgement of weakness, wrong, failure, sin. Secondly, if we're going to plan to confess, we probably need to be actively looking for ways God is revealing himself to us. And I think we're doing that in a sense, but do you stop and do it? I find that if I'm not actively looking when there's an opportunity, I'm not very well prepared. I suggest that we pray for for the recognition of um, opportunities and the recognition of what God is doing in our lives. Maybe part of this, part of the background for this, should happen in our private personal test, uh, private personal devotional time with God. Do we make it? a practice to practice confession in that setting. And I'm thinking about particularly maybe in our prayers, maybe in maybe in in our Bible reading to to restate what we're understanding as true about God. It might be, it might also be stating what is true about me. It could even be something that you write out on Sunday evening and you read every day that week some truth about God and something about you. When we do that kind of thing, and that's a bit of a liturgical and and maybe too formal an approach to be entirely comfortable for some of us, I don't know. But when we do that kind of thing, it begins to shape us. And there's something, I think, that happens even in the, in the quietness of our personal devotional time. When we say, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it this way, when we say out loud, Areas of wrong. When we admit to God, I've been thinking wrongly about you in this way. I've been, my attitude toward so-and-so has been wrong in this way. Is there space in our private time with God for confession? In conclusion... Both admission and profession are are sides of the same confession coin. They're important parts of truth-telling. And when we agree with God about what is true, I think it shapes us in important ways. Profession shapes us by reinforcing the reference points of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And those reference points then help us navigate life. Admission reinforces more who we are. 
and we are needy. We need God. And those acknowledgments set the stage for helping us understand what is really true and right about how God works in the world and what he's wanting to do in us. So this morning, I have two questions to end with. Does your life include confession? And secondly, if it doesn't, or if it should include more, how are you going to implement it? Because it's not going to happen unless you sit down and say, I will do this and this and this. Let's bow our heads for prayer.